Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-1980s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Donovan Moser has asked us to review The Steel Helmet, released February 2nd, 1951. It was written and directed by Samuel Fuller and released by Lippert Pictures. February 2nd, that's Groundhog Day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's Groundhog Day <laughs> again. again. <laughs> At dawn on June 25th, 1950, the North Korean military crossed the 38th parallel to initiate the Korean War, which would last just over three years. Immediately, Samuel Fuller sat down for a week and banged out a script for what would become the first film about the Korean conflict, The Steel Helmet. Studios expressed an interest in the story and suggested John Wayne for the lead role of Sergeant Zack, Fuller was dead set against Wayne and brought in Gene Evans for the part. In place of an audition, Fuller, having learned of Evans' military service in World War II, tossed him an M1 rifle and said, cock this. By passing on Wayne, Fuller doomed the film to a significantly lower budget, but also didn't give a shit because Samuel Fuller is a badass. It cost a mere $100,000 to make, with a 10-day production schedule, exteriors shot in Griffith Park, and a cast of 25 UCLA students as extras on both sides of the battlefield. Production began a mere six months into the Korean conflict. And it wasn't his only Korean war film to come out that year. I think Wow. I now understand the ending of this film a little bit better. There you go. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the, the text at the end? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Five days into shooting, halfway through the production... Evans received word from Murray Lerner, an executive at distributor Lippert Pictures, that he would be paid out of his contract and replaced with the controversial choice of Larry Parks, hot off his testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee. When Fuller caught wind of the scheme, he moved Evans into his own home and cut off all points of contact to the actor for the remainder of the shoot so they couldn't fire him. <laughs> Many battle scenes made use of actual battle footage provided by the U.S. military, when they saw the finished film, in which an American soldier guns down a POW, and they speak critically of the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, the military were predictably furious. Some even called for Fuller's arrest and charges of treason. Okay, just to be clear, so at this point, what, what are we, 51? 51. We're still, we're still backing up the whole putting people into internment camps thing. People still back that shit up today. <laughs> God, Jesus Christ. Yeah. The film performed stronger than expected, grossing over $2 million on its $100,000 budget. We start with American soldiers marching in Korea with the title that reads, This story is dedicated to the United States Infantry. We dissolve to a steel GI helmet peeking over a ridge with a visible bullet hole on one side. The opening titles claim, and introducing Gene Evans as Zack, despite this being Gene's 13th film. After the titles, Gene Evans stands in the titular helmet, and I assumed from the start that we'd be dealing with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge situation. Yeah, I I wasn't entirely sure what was going on here right from right from the get go. Yeah, and it's what a special. Does that, what does that mean? It's a sixth sense. It's a this guy's been dead the whole time situation. Because there's a few moments where it's ghostly quiet and he seems in a trance. Mm-hmm. And and even 
shortly in, in a minute here, like the music's all big and triumphant. All of a sudden, it the music cuts just out. cuts yeah. out. Yeah. He crawls slowly over a hill, and we see his hands are bound behind his back. He appears to be the only survivor of an entire dead patrol who were all shot execution style in the head. Zack stops moving just out of reach of a hunting knife in the grass when he hears someone approaching. We cut to the bare feet of a young boy carrying a rifle down the path. Zack plays dead, and the boy points the rifle at his face. In an insert, we see this is a young Korean boy. He sets down the rifle and listens to Zack's chest for signs of life, and then rolls the man on his face before cutting the binding of his hands with the knife. At first, I thought he was just trying to steal his backpack. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was, like, scavenging. Yeah. But it was also, he's not a very convincing corpse. He's, like, twitching. Breathing a lot, and yeah. And yeah, it's like these, <laughs> it reminded me of that Key of Peel sketch, where... Uh, Keegan is pretending to be shot on the his, ground. On the ground, but he keeps moving, and Peel keeps seeing him. <laughs> like, like I saw that. <laughs> but once the arms are free, the kid pulls the man into an upright sitting position and introduces himself as an ally. South Korean. Zach takes some pills and chugs from his canteen, and then he and the kid take a moment to treat Zach's wounded leg. Zach tosses a handful of ethnic slurs in the face of his rescuer. Talk more like a dog face than a. G- I am no. G- I am Korean. All right, all right, all right, so you're not a The kid assumes from the hole in his helmet that Zack has a bullet in his head, but Zack explains that it just spun around the inside. My dad served in the Vietnam War and said this was a fairly common occurrence and it would sometimes cut a line the whole way around their heads. Ugh. The kid recognizes Zack's M1 and knows to check the dead men for 30 caliber bullets. He says his family is all dead at the hands of the North Korean army. Zack tries to reward the kid for his help, but he doesn't have much and the kid doesn't smoke. I got no chocolate show around. Give me a cigar. This character inspired the name of screenwriter William Huke's dog, and Huke then reused the name for a character in Raiders prequel script, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where the part was played by recent Academy Award winner Kihui Kwan. Presumably the dog was both short and round. Short Round explains that because he saved Zack, they have to travel together now. It's a Buddhist proverb or something where... My heart is in your hands, or your heart is in my hands. Yeah, I'm responsible for your life now that I've saved it. Yeah. Zack is viciously disinterested in company, despite his injury and unfamiliarity with the area. When Zack realizes he can't get by without the kid, he orders Short Round to steal a helmet and boots off the dead man. Why not more? Because I know, like, when he was treating the Because wound, it's called steel helmet, not steel helmets. No, I'm Get not it? talking about more helmets. I'm talking about the fact that all of these guys had packs. And when he was trying to help Zach with his wound, he goes and grabs some some powder to, right, to yeah. shake off onto the wound from another pack like he needed more of it. But, like, these guys probably all have rations. They probably have more water. Like, why are we not I mean, taking more? I think it's a balancing act because it's like if I need to get pretty far, then I need to limit how much I'm carrying but you're right. If the kid, it's kid had no supplies. pack at all. Like, just mm-hmm. give the kid a pack, put some food and water in it, and yeah, move on. That's true. Zach notices a big piece of paper taped to the boy's back. Prayer to Buddha, asking him to heal me if I'm wounded. Oh, yeah? I thought you forgot to take out the price tag. I guess the assumption is that if he's shot, he will fall, and his back will face the sky where Buddha can read it. Uh, you I, just have I, to be very careful with your landing, because if you're covering the message, then he's going to be like, I don't know what that kid wanted. I thought it just said, like, bless me. Maybe it was a DNR. I don't know. (laughs) He flipped over. Just before they leave the area, Zach is made to explain the boy's nickname. What a short round. It's a bullet that don't go all the way, and that's you, bud. You're not going all the way with me. They march together through a field and notice two people praying at a small Buddhist shrine. 
Zack warns Short Round to hit the floor if they start shooting, and they do. Zack manages to take them both out, and one of them feigns death to prepare for a sneak attack, begging for help. The voice is very deep, but Short Round assumes it's an injured woman, and when Zack tries to check the person out, they grab the knife to stab him, and Zack bashes the person unconscious, probably dead. He tugs open the person's clothing to reveal a North Korean uniform underneath. Short Round checks both enemy soldiers for rounds and collects their weapons. Moving through a foggy patch of trees, Zack spots an American medic will come to know as Corporal Thompson. Relax, bust. Take it easy. Got any chocolate? This is also where it seems like it's getting kind of like ethereal. Right, yeah. Like you could almost speculate at this point that, oh, these are just other dead soldiers and dead people that they're encountering yeah. in this kind of weird afterlife space. But really it's just a budgetary confinement mm -hmm. because they're having to shoot it in probably one small sound stage. Right. Later the man patches up Zack's leg while Short Round munches on candy. Thompson says they killed all his platoon too and only kept him alive to patch them up. Thompson says he served in World War II with the 16th Infantry 1st Division, which is the same unit Samuel Fuller served in, nicknamed the Big Red One, which later became the title of another Fuller film we've talked about, The Big Red One. The two men and the boy share a feast that Thompson stole from the North Koreans when he escaped. Thompson also mentions here that between World War II and Korea, he used the GI Bill to attend medical school. On the move again, Zack nearly shoots another squad of American soldiers moving through the foggy swampland. Zack is legitimately angered by their careless formation, which would allow them all to be taken out fairly easily at once. He shouts to them from the fog to give them a sobering scare. Hi, you ballerinas! You're all bunched up! What'd you learn to go on a patrol of special service? Holy smoke! Sounds like Sourpuss himself. Hey, that you, Zack? Yeah. Who the head? Yeah! Where are you? Smack in front of you. Ah! It seems these men, led by Lieutenant Driscoll, know Zack, and one of them, Sergeant Tanaka, Zack refers to as Buddha Head, which I looked into it and I can't I can't tell if that's a slur or not. Um I found conflicting reports that it's just a nickname for a person. It used to be a nickname for someone who is Japanese Hawaiian. Mm. And then it was just a term for Japanese people, but I don't know if it was derogatory or not because some people say it is and some people say it's not. So I'm just going to call him Sergeant Tanaka from now on. But in the clips, when you hear people referring to someone named Buddha Head, that's who they're talking about. They immediately distrust Thompson, even though both men present the same story of being the lone survivors of their patrols. One of the men, Lieutenant Driscoll, asks Short Round if he can provide directions to a nearby Buddhist temple, and he doesn't answer. What's the matter? Doesn't he understand English? Sure. He just doesn't like it. The other soldiers admit they're lost, and weirdly, the teams head in opposite directions away from each other. Thompson goes with Zack and Short Round. Sometime later, shots ring out, and Zack picks on the lost squadron for the effeminate sound of their return fire. Like, he's like, <laughs> oh, they even shoot like ballerinas. We cut to the lost soldiers and see one of their helmets getting knocked off their head, revealing a bald skull. Or a bald head, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a bald scalp. Just a, just a skeleton head. Just Yeah. This is Skeletor. We'll come to know him as Corporal Skeletor. Zack meets up with Tanaka and they move forward together to locate the hidden snipers. Tanaka draws fire from one position and Zack spots the man shooting back at him. They pull the same maneuver again to lure out the second gun. With both snipers clocked, they cross guns and take aim at the enemy combatants at once. All right. Let's make some money. 
We see both snipers fall from their perches and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. Zack orders the men to their feet and notices one of them is carrying around a big heavy box which he claims contains an organ. Like the musical instrument, not yeah. a spleen. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. I was like, it's an organ. I was like, what? <laughs> this what? is our sergeant's brain. <laughs> Hopefully we can revive him. Sergeant Disney will live again. This is a this is a harmonium, right? Sure. I don't know. They call it an organ in the film. Mm. Zach wants to see inside, and the man shows him the keys on top. The box says Fat Paul on the side. That's you, Fat Paul. It belonged to Father Paul, the chaplain. The H.E.R. was burned off in a fire. My name's Brody. Do you guys recall the last time we saw letters burned off the side of a box in wartime? No. I'm going to say Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. Oh, ha! Okay, fair enough. Because the instrument totally fills the box, the soldier carrying it, Bronte, has to carry ammo looped over his shoulders like a scarf. Zack goes up and down the line, picking on everybody, and eventually finds the bald kid. Who's Cal 2? I lost all my hair when I was a kid. Yeah, how? Scarlet fever. I wanted him to say, oh yeah, where? <laughs> if I knew it wouldn't be lost. The last man in line, Joe, doesn't talk. Zack chews on a spent cigar like it's fucking beef jerky while he looks around for more stogies. I, I'll never understand that. Uh, it looks uh, like he's eating it. All, all of these characters who just gnaw on wet, gross cigars in their mouth. I, yeah. I, I, it must just be like soaking, sopping wet with I spit. feel like if I gave him a snicker bar, he would just start eating it in the wrapper. That's, that's what <laughs> it, it looks like to me. It's like, why are you doing that? There's paper around that. <laughs> I mean, is it... Because I don't, I don't, I don't smoke, and I and I don't. Uh, I definitely don't. So you're not supposed to eat it down to the ash. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I mean, but is this like a thing? Like, are you getting any kind of like nicotine? It's or a any thing kind in of... old war movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I would guess chewing on the leaves probably does get some of the some of the chemicals in your mouth. It still, just looks really gross. Imagine it lasts longer than smoking it that way, and perhaps you're not giving away your location by not smoking it. Maybe. The next day, they're walking down a path and dive into the bushes on either side when they cross paths with a large group of South Korean villagers. They spend almost all day making sure they aren't secretly enemy combatants before continuing their march. They stop for a break when Tanaka spots a crop of watermelons off the path. Like, <laughs> they're just yeah. like, within within a few steps there's watermelons growing on the yeah. side of this dirt road well see i i was immediately like oh man do not cut open those melons because i thought they were booby trapped melons <laughs> like they just planted them here well haha -ha. um <laughs> well because i will be vindicated short in the next scene yeah <laughs> but i was like oh man i bet i bet they they left these melons and they're filled like with like grenades so when you cut them open like the pins the how would you not notice <laughs> Know. What kind of left. shitty magician? I think you just put the landmine under them and then it triggers it. No, you you painstakingly build a grenade inside of it like no. a ship in a bottle. Well, no, no, you, you, Blind. You, you carve out the hole. Exactly how long put in the, you put is in this the melon going to last after you cut a hole in it and leave Look, it outside? I'm, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm just saying. I would say maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> but, I mean, watermelons have a lot of what's called water in them, right? Mm-hmm. Don't they have to grow, like, in a river or very close to a river? These are, like, desert watermelons? Um, I, I, my knowledge of where the watermelons grow comes purely from Raffi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you ever see a bear combing his hair? 
Now it's Tanaka's turn to pick on Baldi, and he tells the man to rub dirt on his head instead of tonics if he wants any hair to grow. One of the men interrupts the chat to announce that he discovered the body of a dead American just downhill from here. You sure he's dead? You gotta be sure you know. Half his head is gone. Okay, yeah, that's probably, he's <laughs> his, probably gone. His melon. Oh. Someone suggests at least looking for dog tags, and Zach thinks that's a terrible idea. Dog tags? Are you kidding? But we ought to find out who he is. Look, Lieutenant. Don't let their emotions get the best of you. Dead man's nothing but a corpse. Driscoll ignores Zack's advice and sends the second lieutenant to collect the body's dog tags. The rest of the guys watch from above as the second lieutenant is completely obliterated by a sudden explosion from the dead body. It, it's, it's a meaty explosion. Yeah, too. It, it reminds me of like bombs in the, in the Tremors universe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they just take a lot of meat and throw it in the air. Ever hear of a body being booby-trapped? Get his dog tags. Big deal. Might have been worth pointing this potentiality out if you actually predicted it. <laughs> Instead, Zack immediately wonders where the man's pack is so he can look for his cigars. Everybody else seems disgusted by this reaction, but it's very practical. <laughs> Over the next hill, they spot the Chang and Sa temple and head inside. The camera pushes up close on a balcony on the second floor, and we see a North Korean soldier watching the men through binoculars. The Americans approach cautiously. They decide the building is abandoned and set down their weapons inside. Short Round walks to the center of the temple and lights the candle before the Golden Buddha statue and prays. The rest of the soldiers file in behind him and remove their helmets out of respect to this deity who appears to have provided shelter for them today. Driscoll orders the men to treat this temple with the utmost respect, and immediately all their helmets and guns are clattering loudly to the floor. I can't tell if that was supposed to be a joke or not, but it yeah. looks like they're about to crack the tiles here. Zack orders Short Round to bring his helmet and boots from the porch to avoid signaling their presence here, and then he limps around the temple a bit. From the top floor of the temple, Driscoll is relieved to find that he is able to keep an eye out in all directions, but it's still very foggy outside the building. The men get the radio working, and their orders are to capture a POW. Zack decides to have a chat with Joe, the soldier who doesn't talk, manning the gun downstairs. While he looks for Joe, we spot the North Korean hiding in a stairwell. Didn't you hear me calling you? Joe shakes his head. Yeah? Well, Jack, ask yourself inside and stay there. I don't want any movement on this porch. Did you hear that? Joe nods. Zack tells Joe he had a friend in the Kazarine Pass who was killed suddenly because he refused to make a sound. We saw reenactments of the battles in Kazarine Pass in the Big Red One with tanks running over the holes soldiers had buried themselves in. Joe doesn't seem swayed by Zack's anecdote. After he leaves, Joe whispers in a donkey's ear. Because there's a donkey here. I don't know yeah. if I mentioned that. <laughs> I think they took it from the like the people that the Koreans that they, yeah. Yeah, they searched. Because they were like, sweet, a donkey. I think they got two of them. Oh, shit. Noah style. Going to repopulate the earth with donkeys. <laughs> In case we're the only people left. <laughs> the men sit down to have a meal together on the floor when suddenly Driscoll leans forward and accidentally pulls the pin from a grenade on his belt. Like, how are you sitting... That you just leaned forward and pulled the pin out of a grenade on your belt. Yeah, uh, I was discussing the scene with my dad. Um, granted, his experience was from the Vietnam War. Sure. Um, but he was saying that, that that would be pretty difficult to do given the, the shapes of the pins, at least that he had in Vietnam. Yeah, I feel like they're probably not designed to yeah. do that and just catch on things well, randomly. He says that they're, they're, they're kind of flared on the other end so that you, you have to give them a tug and it bends the metal kind of Out. as you yeah. pull. 
The only thing, thing I could think of would be that all the walking eventually jiggled it loose. And then, and leaned- then it just fell out when he leaned Yeah. Forward. Okay. I mean, that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. Tanaka leaps into action and manages to repin the grenade before it explodes. Zack orders Bronte to play Old Lang Syne on the organ. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Old Lang Syne? New Year's? It was. Evil? It wasn't New Year's <laughs> Evil, Damn but it, it was New Year's <laughs> Eve. Because that's when you sing it. <laughs> uh, what other movies had New Year's in it? Um... There was a Christmas tree in the scene, as there would be in a New Year's scene. A very big Christmas tree. Poseidon Adventure? The Poseidon oh, Adventure. there you go. I, w- I was trying to think of the the film uh, that takes place on the college campus, but that wasn't a, that was just a dance, right? That wasn't like a holiday dance. It was a graduation dance, I think. It was in June. The Prowler? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is the summer. Short Round comes out mid-song and sings along with the instrument in Korean. The rest of the soldiers seem perplexed. At the end, he compliments Bronte's pitch-perfect performance of the Korean National Anthem. Up until 1936, the Korean National Anthem was traditionally sang to the tune of Old Lang Syne, but in 1936, 14 years prior to the events of this film, An Ek Tai composed a new original instrumental for it. But this kid was still familiar with the old version, I guess. That night... We see Short Round writing a new prayer to help Baldy's hair grow. Tanaka rubs a few handfuls of dirt into the man's scalp for good measure. Upstairs, Joe has been left as a lookout. I would probably make him a daytime lookout. Yeah. Since he doesn't talk and would thus take longer to wake everyone. The North Korean soldier reappears and jams a bayonet into Joe's back, just as Zach predicted, and Joe shares his precious few words for the film. Lying on the floor, Zack and Thompson are annoyed to recognize that Baldi's snore sounds exactly like incoming artillery, and they slap the man awake. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I really like that. It's a great bit. sound effect for it. Hey! What'd you do that for? What'd you do that for? Huh? What'd you do that for? Now you were whistling in your sleep. You sound like a shell. It ain't my fault I breathe like that. What do you want me to do, stop breathing? Zack sends the kid upstairs on patrol, and there he finds Joe's dead body, before screaming down to the guys. They locate one locked door, and Zack shoots it full of holes. They don't find the man inside, and later take shots at a silhouette, only to find out it was actually Thompson, but thankfully they missed him. They convene to discuss a search plan on the ground floor, and we see the North Korean drop a stick grenade down on them from above, but it doesn't go off. I couldn't tell what it was when yeah. he dropped it. It wasn't not, not, not until like a, like a scene or two later when they're holding it in their hand. I was yeah. like, oh, that's what he dropped? Yeah. I, I thought he was intentionally... Getting their attention. Getting their attention. And then it didn't seem, it seemed to backfire. I was like, oh no, his. No, he just had a perfect shot to kill all of them at the same time and he messed it up. Zach runs upstairs and only finds a statue of Mahakala. He fires on it and the North Korean collapses to the floor from behind it. He's injured but not dead. They've successfully collected a POW as requested. By chance, the man speaks fluent English. He heard them receive that order, so he's confident they won't let him come to any harm. Tanaka finds the dud stick grenade and determines that the pin never came out as designed. And then he tosses it at Zack like, oh, the pin never came out. Throws a grenade at his friend. As Thompson bandages the man up, the POW asks how he can show allegiance to a country that has been so terrible to his race. You'll pay for a ticket, but you even have to sit in the back of a public bus. Isn't that so? 
That's right. A hundred years ago, I couldn't even ride a bus. At least now I can sit in the back. Maybe in 50 years, I'll sit in the middle. Someday even the front. There's some things you just can't rush, Buster. Which has become the new slogan of the Democratic Party. There's just some things you can't rush, Buster. Progress in moderation. Were there buses a hundred years before this? There was. I looked in it up. Eighteen fifty? Yeah. Horse drawn buses, but they existed. The POW destroyed the radio, but Baldy manages to repair it enough to receive a signal, but they can't broadcast with it. The voice coming through at them is positively apoplectic at the audacity of these soldiers using a radio that's broken. It's like, <laughs> how dare you? I can just hear crackling from your end. Why haven't you fixed your dumb radio? Yeah, he's like, what's wrong with you men? It's like, he, he's so it's like, upset. Clearly it's broken, sir. What kind of men have a broken radio? What are you, at war or something? Do you guys recall the last time we saw a radio broken in a way that allowed a signal to be received but not sent? Uh... The Shining? More recently. Oh. It was described by a character in the scene as a freak reception. We can hear him, but he can't hear us. It's a freak reception. Because it didn't make sense that they could hear the guy, but they couldn't talk to him. I don't remember. Uh, it sounds familiar, but I can't. Super Snooper! Uh, because he was out in the field and they were trying to tell him that a rocket was going to Right, be right, right. Next, the POW tries to turn Tanaka. They hate us because of our eyes. He reminds Tanaka about the prison camps of World War II as though he'd forgotten. They threw Japanese-Americans into prison camps in the last war, didn't they? Perhaps even your parents. Perhaps even you. You rang the bell that time. They did. The prisoner asks why he would fight for someone else's country when they don't even respect him, and he reminds the prisoner that it's his country too. A few times in their chat, he nearly loses his temper and unfortunately ends the conversation with some racist anti-Asian rhetoric, despite this actor being Chinese by ancestry. Ah, uh, knock off before I forget the articles of war and slap those rabbit teeth of yours out one at a time. The next morning, Zack finds Short Round composing a final prayer in the temple and he rushes the kid out the door. He sits down at the same desk and takes out a small wooden chip on a string to paint Short Round on it as an unofficial dog tag for the kid. The men all prepare to leave. Tanaka is not excited about more walking and threatens to join the Air Force. Zack tells him there's nothing like the infantry, pointing out that in air or water, every near-death experience leads to another near-death experience because you're in the air or in the ocean. But in the infantry, you get hit and that's it. One thing or the other, you're dead or alive, but you're on the ground. It was. Nothing like the infantry. Is he kidding? Zack goes to Bronte, who we learned earlier was a conscientious objector to the war, but later enlisted. He gives the man control of their 50 cal machine gun and says to play with this instead of the chaplain's organ if he hears anybody coming. Never play with a chaplain's organ, kids. Oh. On their way out of the temple, Driscoll inexplicably asks Zack to swap helmets with him, confessing he thinks Zack's is lucky. Let's trade helmets. I suspect it will kill you if we do. <laughs> Zach tells him to fuck off. Get your own lucky helmet. <laughs> yeah. The prisoner is excited to see the Americans arguing. Zach lectures Driscoll on respect and the men he served with on D-Day in Normandy, men he would gladly give his helmet to. Another North Korean soldier sneaks out of the grass outside the temple. Right on cue, Short Round steps outside and gets shot. Inside, the Americans drop to the floor and Zack and Baldy fire on the North Korean from upstairs until he stops moving. 
If only Baldy'd noticed this man before he opened fire. Baldy is left in charge to keep an eye out, and when Zack gets back downstairs, he sees them carry in the body of Short Round in Bronte's arms. Zack is clearly upset, but tries to put on a curt face. It's his own fault. Told him I didn't want any kids tagging along. Take him outside and bury him. He throws the kid's dog tag gift on the floor, and Bronte turns with the boy and drops the kid's too big helmet and the prayer off his back. The prisoner picks up Short Round's last prayer and translates it for the rum. To Buddha, please make Sergeant Zack like me. <clears throat> what a stupid prayer. In a fit of rage, Zack unloads on the man. Thompson immediately provides the prisoner medical attention while Driscoll chews Zack out and promises to see him executed for this war crime. What are you waiting for, Thompson? Sew him up, give him blood. Are you kidding? You blew a hole in him as big as a tunnel. I can drive a truck through it. Ah! If you die, I'll kill you. Amazingly, Thompson is able to keep the prisoner alive for some time. The man begs for a prayer, and Zack is enraged again. I wanted him to just feed the guy Short Round's last prayer. Mm -hmm. There you go. How's that prayer for you? Prayers are good. <laughs> is it going down nice? Thompson slaps the guy on the forehead with a Buddha bless you, and he drops limply to the bench he's been laid across. So he's dead. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if they were trying to make a statement here. Uh, because, like, so he's North Korean. He's supposed to be communist. And, yeah. Uh, and obviously he finds the concept of prayer stupid but when he's on his deathbed i think he thought it was stupid because this was a south korean kid praying for acceptance from the americans mm. which he was like you shouldn't need that so yeah okay and i thought what i thought they were doing was that when push came to shove he was still willing to believe believe yeah baldy comes out shouting that they're suddenly surrounded by commies they finally get the radio fixed and call in an airstrike or it's not an airstrike i thought it was an airstrike but there's cannons nearby but, yeah i mean i mean the strikes are coming through the air yeah here we get a quick montage of actual military footage taken earlier the same year that the government would come to regret supplying for the film. Long-range American cannons bombard the forces outside the temple. Eventually, enemy fire is demolishing the temple around them. When soldiers swarm the building on foot, the Americans fire on them from all directions. Uh, one of the uh, artillery, I think it's a tank, yeah. has a name written on the barrel. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, Gladys, but spelled Glad-ass. Oh, nice. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's great. That's from the stock footage? Yeah. That's awesome. A Chinese tank is staged behind some nearby bushes, and Tanaka takes it out with the bazooka he's been lugging around this whole time. Finally. You get, you yeah. get like, Chekhov's bazooka here. How annoying would it be to carry this around all the time and not shoot it at a tank? The tank footage of it exploding is actually production dailies because this tank was constructed from plywood, and it is handily destroyed as the temple is continually demolished by enemy fire. Bronte jumps on the M2 while Zack feeds him ammo. You never thought you'd be knocking him off like this, huh? What are you going to do if you come out of this? Stay in the army? Going back to my studies. Or you'll be a priest. Can't you tell a pro-life I am? Blam, 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 blam. Unfortunately, his plans are cut way short when someone hits him from outside and Zack has to take over the machine gun. Tanaka asks for cover fire while Thompson checks out Bronte. Thompson whips off his Red Cross helmet and armband and takes over the M2. I never thought I'd be making money like this again. Hundreds of men charge the temple, and after thousands of shots fired, Zack is suddenly having flashbacks to Normandy. Did you hear the colonel? Huh? No. Did you hear the colonel? Did you hear what he said? Yeah. 
Yeah, I heard what he said. Well, what are we waiting for? Get off the beach. Another explosion knocks him to the floor, and Thompson, Driscoll, and Tanaka keep firing the machine gun out the window. Or hole in the wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where the men can see it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. One last combatant fires back and kills Driscoll, leaving just Tanaka and Thompson, when Baldy comes downstairs to celebrate their victory. Apparently, Zack is alive, just unconscious. Tanaka, Baldy, and Thompson confess they are hungry. First we'll eat, then we'll bury him. Sometime later, American forces discover the temple and the piles and piles of bodies surrounding it. The four survivors slink out of the building, and when asked for an officer, Thompson nods at Driscoll's grave before the men are led away. Zack stops to trade helmets with Driscoll's M1 tombstone because the man has earned his respect posthumously. A closing title reads, There is no end to this story, because the war was ongoing at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to end this script. Uh, there is no end. Look, I wrote it in a week, just like I said I would. <laughs> it took an hour to write. I thought it would take an hour to read. <laughs> so that's the Steel Helmet, everybody. Um, I feel like this is a thinking man's war movie um, because it's mostly philosophical mm. and uh, the shooting just happens in one quick bunch at the end. But um, I think those two scenes with the North Korean trying to sneak people over to his side are the most interesting yeah um and definitely the scenes that pissed off the military the most um anything involving this north korean character which is weird because i i was going back over this whole the, those scenes in my head where he's trying to convince them it's like oh you know americans america's doing really doing you terrible injustices right but then they come back with it's like well yeah but things are changing and it's going to get better and 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 I'm going to stay until it gets better and I'm going to be part of making it better like right. this seems way positive american yeah like in well, my point of it view it is pro american in that sense but i mean 51 is well before like civil rights legislation right. was going through so at the time that was still like this is this is radical leftist propaganda that you're putting in this movie that this guy thinks he's going to sit at the front of a bus at some point. That's unacceptable. Oh, see, I thought I thought it was like it's like, yeah, yeah things I, are going to no, get I, better. I think that is Fuller's point. Okay. I, I think Samuel Fuller is saying these men know the fu they can see the future of America. They they have their eyes on the prize and they can see what the country could become. But I think that the reason the military got mad is because they feel like they're giving money to what should be like a America's already perfect movie yeah. and aren't we great and it turned out to be like a yeah we're a really flawed nation but you know we're trying to we're trying to get better and 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 Tanaka ends up saying close to the same thing which is that it's like yeah my parents were born in Japan but I was born in America like this is my country I am an American and so I'm I'm doing what I can to show them this is what an American can do. I fought in World War II. Now I'm here fighting in the Korean War. I'm I'm doing my part for my country. And obviously the stuff where they end up killing this guy. Mm. Um even just shooting at him if they had saved him. Like that's that's enough that there's no way John Wayne would play that part. Yeah. Because John Wayne has to always be the good guy, you know? I mean John Wayne might have socked him in the face. Right. But I think more likely if John Wayne had played this part, he would be like that's not what my character would do. He wouldn't shoot this guy. So someone else will shoot him and I'll interrupt it or something like that. And then we'll lecture him about costing himself his furlough. But it won't be me that did it because then that'll leave a bad taste in people's mouths. Well, like uh, the Sands of Iwo Jima where the guy, right. the guy like took a break and the guys got killed. So John Wayne beats the crap out of him. Exactly. Um, but we, uh, 
so we we have the scene where where he shoots the guy up and he ends up dying from the wounds which is a war crime yeah and the character is not treated like a war criminal by the ending of the film i don't think well I he's mean, treated kind of like a well a shitty thing happened to all of us and this is what you had to do in the moment even though he didn't have to do it he was he was doing it because of emotions yeah but and i don't think anyone who's left with with Thompson, would judge him or yeah yeah thompson baldy and tanaka they're not gonna say shit yeah um but when the military took exception to this scene they went to samuel fuller and they said why do you think that this is acceptable to show america like this this makes america look much worse than it is and he's like no it doesn't because i fought in world war ii and this shit happened all the fucking time and then he went to the pentagon and asked for them to confirm all these cases that that he had witnessed personally or that he was aware of and said to them look this is the thing that happens it happens in wartime and you can turn around and say oh then we shouldn't have done what we did in world war ii but no one's going to agree with that because that was taking out the nazis you mm-hmm. know and so um his point was just if this makes america look bad then america is bad because this is what america did and for fuller to be doing this in 51 is insane yeah, yeah. um to be to be telling these characters stories like like Tanaka that's that's such an incredible arc for a character that you would never see in I've never seen anything like that in any war movie yeah. not not before the 90s anyway like I I just feel like like getting to the point of like why are you fighting for this country if this country isn't fighting for you and for them to come back with honest answers for why they're doing it I just feel like he treated each of these characters with a lot more respect than they would ordinarily get mm-hmm but I think it's a thumbs up for me for that reason alone, because Fuller did a lot of things that I think would upset audiences, but audiences still reacted to it like yeah. it was a good movie. And it was low budget, so it got a lot of play in it's a B war movie, you know. It's it's very cheap, but it doesn't look so cheap that I mean, obviously the Blu-ray looks gorgeous. I'm I'm yeah. very impressed with the print that that survives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree. I would give it a thumbs up in so much as I, I don't like war movies that are a lot of fighting. There's not much fighting in this. Yeah, it's uh, mostly talking. It's mostly, yeah, it's mostly about the other things. And, and it does not feel like propaganda in the way that a lot of the other movies at this time right. felt. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a John Wayne movie. And I understand why he pushed back so hard against that. Because that they would have changed a few things here and there. And John Wayne would have been uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. you know, treating minorities respectfully. Because that wasn't his thing either. <laughs> For, especially in the 50s. Um, so that's crazy. I mean, he tried to pick a fight with, uh, Oh, Sasheen Littlefeather. Mm. He tried to pick a fight with her on her way out of the Oscars because of what she said about America being racist against native Americans. And it's like, yeah, John Wayne, you're a big part of that <laughs> because you've been on, on screens shooting at them for decades now. Mm. Oh, well, it's a thumbs up for me as well. Uh, I had never even heard of this film. Yeah. And me going, neither going into it. Uh, and, uh, my father hadn't either, uh, he didn't watch it with me, but, uh, I was talking to him about it cause I thought, I found it, found it rattling in my brain, yeah. much like the bullet. Uh, I was just thinking <laughs> just about it. around your head. Yeah. Just, I was just thinking about it a lot. And, uh, I was like, yeah, this movie made me, made me think things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I appreciated that. Our writer director here was Samuel Fuller. Uh, this is a very early directing credit for him. This is one of his first three or four. He has writing credits dating back to 1934. He wrote Merrill's Marauders, and he wrote Targets for Bogdanovich. Uh, he directed The Naked Kiss, Shark, White Dog, and Falconow, the impossible documentary of a concentration camp. That's the one where 
he literally got the footage of the concentration camp being liberated mm. by American forces, and then the scene is reenacted in The Big Red One. Right. We've seen his work previously directing The Big Red One. The music here came from Paul Dunlap. This is only his third composing credit. He later scores Big House USA, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Cyborg 2087, and so far for the show Gorp, which, coincidentally or not, also features footage from I Was a Teenage Werewolf. <laughs> That's the movie that they're watching on, like, Parents Week or whatever. But it's unclear to me if he's getting the credit for music in oh. that section of the film that they used, but he's the only credited composer on the film, mm. and there's other music in that movie. So it's possible that he just happened to do the music on that and was like, hey, I have this old film that I did if you guys want something to show for this scene. Yeah, like, and I can I can give you the rights to the music because yeah, I'm maybe. the one who wrote it. Yeah. Cinematographer was Ernest Miller. He has DP credits back to 21. I didn't recognize many of them before 1932's The Last of the Mohicans, but it's mostly Westerns. The editor was Philip Kahn. He cut Arabian Nights, House of Frankenstein, and Black Friday. Gene Evans played Sergeant Zack. He was Deputy Sheriff in Ace in the Hole, Chief Malumphrey in Operation Petticoat, and Phineas Mitchell in Park Row. Evans basically recycled this character into a new character named Sergeant Rock in Fuller's next Korean war film, Fixed Bayonets, released, as I said, the same year. Robert Hutton played Private Bronte. He has lots of fun sci-fi credits like The Man Without a Body, The Colossus of New York, and They Came From Beyond Space. He also played an insurance agent, uncredited, in a movie called can Hieronymus Merkin ever forgive Mercy Humpy and find true happiness? That's the oh, full title boy. of the movie. That, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Can Let's... Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Humpy and find true happiness? That sounds like a way to remember the planets or something. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a movie. I beg you that we never watch that so I don't have to try to fit it on to any sort of like calendar. Yeah. <laughs> we last saw him as Dr. Richard Warren in Trog. Steve Brody played Lieutenant Driscoll. He was Fisher in Out of the Past and Chief Budge in The Kane Mutiny. His only 1981 title, Frankenstein Island, will be getting a minisode eventually. James Edwards played Corporal Thompson. We saw him last as Corporal Melvin in The Manchurian Candidate. He's also Sergeant Meeks in Patton and a track parking attendant in Kubrick's The Killing. But yeah, Melvin in uh, The Manchurian Candidate is the only other guy who's having the same nightmares that Sinatra right, right. is. He's the sweetest, most kindest man I've ever met. Exactly. Richard Liu played Sergeant Tanaka. Later, he shows up in Around the World in 80 Days, Which Way to the Front, and he's high fat in The Man with the Golden Gun. Sid Melton played Joe. That's the guy who doesn't talk. He's possibly best known for the part of Salvador Petrillo, late husband of Estelle Getty's Sophia Petrillo in seven episodes of The Golden Girls. William Chun played Short Round. Not many other credits, unfortunately. I thought he did a great job here. Neil Morrow played First G.I. He has bit parts in later Fuller films like Shock Corridor, The Naked Kiss, and White Dog. And Lynn Stallmaster played the second lieutenant. He has mostly casting director credits on films as recent as Battlefield Earth. For our show so far, he was the casting director on The Black Marble, Holy Moses, Secondhand Hearts, Foolin' Around, A Change of Seasons, Superman 2, Stir Crazy, On the Right Track, Caveman, Blowout, Mommy Dearest, and Looker so far. Was he the casting director on this? Uh, no. And he exploded <laughs> in this movie. Not in real life. I mean, he exploded onto the scene and did a great job as a casting director. But the animal is inside out. Yeah. And it exploded. <laughs> what is that from? It's Galaxy Quest. <laughs> That's right. It's a rocket. It doesn't have any vulnerable spots. 
I think that's everything for the Steel Helmet. Thanks again to Donovan Moser for their generous contribution to the show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. <laughs>